Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, a product of the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. Hello, Kevin. How's it going? Doing pretty well. How about you? I'm doing great. And also joined by our old pal, Evan Grant, who's going to make an announcement for us. Evan, tell us what you got on your mind, on your little mind. I have a major business announcement to to announce. Is this like Jerry Jones, a big announcement coming Wednesday? Yes, it is. It's very much on a similar scale. Um, what What it is, is there's another podcast at the Dallas Morning News that features yours truly, me, Evan Grant. Hello, everybody. It's me, Evan Grant. It, does it feature you, or are you a bit player on some of the podcasts? It doesn't feature me. I'm a guest. You just said it featured you. I know. I was building it up a little bit too high. But <laughs> I'm, I'm, an, I'm an occasional guest, let's just say, on Eat, Drink, DFW, hosted by Aaron Bookie, um, also featuring Sarah Blaskovich, uh, our, our extraordinary food writer, and Claire Baller our other extraordinary food writer, among others. Uh, And um, I get to appear on a couple of episodes because personally, I like food. Um, And it is a, it's, it's a, it's a great little, it's a great little segment uh, that I think that people will enjoy. Uh, I know that this week we talked about food at the ballpark. Sarah and I stuffed our faces last week uh, and they will have lots of other interesting segments and, Good news is you don't have to go anywhere else to find it. You can find it where all your Dallas Morning News podcasts are found, all the platforms on which you can get Sports Day Insider, Apple, Spotify, all of that. You can also get Eat, Drink, DFW. So tune in, and I know both of you guys have already downloaded it, right? Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Downloaded the food or the podcast? Uh, If you're (laughs) (laughs) the podcast. I'm sure you've downloaded plenty of food too, Kevin. Uh, David. Yeah, uh, David. David's a foodie too. We all like food. This will be fun. Uh, looking forward to this and uh, and what y'all got in mind and what y'all are talking about in food. And there's always food out the ballpark. Unfortunately, there's not any winning out at the ballpark. Uh, but we'll get to that a little bit later in, uh, in our Rangers segment. We're going to start out today with uh, the Mavericks, uh, who are starting the playoffs Saturday at noon against the Utah Jazz uh, at the American Airlines Center. Uh, they fought hard to get this uh, um, uh, get the home edge in this series. As a fourth seed, they got that. They finished only one measly game out of third place, which would have allowed them to avoid the Phoenix Suns altogether should they get past the first round until the conference finals anyway. Uh, but that didn't happen. Uh now, something else has come up, obviously, and that is the health of Luka Doncic, who pulled up lame in the game Sunday against the Spurs, his left calf. He was diagnosed officially today with a calf sprain. They did not tell us what level or grade of sprain that that actually was. Uh, obviously, there are different levels of those types of things. Most of them are not good. Most of them, even a grade one sprain, will kind of get you uh, about a week to 10 days of rehab, which obviously would extend past Saturday's game against the Jazz. Um, we, we don't know uh, exactly what's happening or what they're doing. There's, they're trying all kinds of stuff, hyperbaric chambers, voodoo, all kinds of things to get his calf back in shape. We'll find out uh, what th- that does, but... 
But David, our old friend uh, Tim Callishaw uh, wrote to, uh, for today's paper that uh, that Jason Kidd should not have been playing Luka Doncic in the third quarter with an 18-point lead. What do you say about that? Well, first, Tim may be your friend, but I don't know that you should speak for me on that. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I was speaking broadly. It was, it was the, royal, the royal hour, yeah. Two, while I understand what he's saying, and my belief is a, a large section of the Mavericks fan base agrees with him, uh, I, I didn't have any problem with him being in that game. Uh, I thought the rationale for, for a player of Doncic's age uh, who hasn't had any physical issues since early in the season where he admitted he came in not in the best of shape, um, knowing that you're not going to play again, that you're a young team overall, and you're not going to play again for six, potentially seven days at that point. They weren't sure whether it's going to be Saturday or Sunday. Uh, they had a pretty good idea it was going to be Saturday, but, uh, but, but you knew you weren't going to play again for six days. A young player who during the season is constantly on the court working, doing things. Uh, I, I don't have a problem uh, w- with him being out on the court. Uh, I, I think it was a uh, – now certainly you can go, well, you can say that, but if they're in the same situation again next year, I bet they hold them out. Well, they might then because you've been through this, right? But I, I, don't, think, I don't think he was put under any sort of undue risk uh, in that game, and especially when you hadn't seen any signs of fatigue uh, with him or any sort of injury he was managing going into that game. Uh, so certainly bad luck. Uh, certainly now, if he is unable to play in, in that opening game, and now suddenly you give away home series, home court advantage, the very first game out of the shoot because Luka Doncic's not there, uh, then you've really put yourself in a bind. But um, people will point to that. You can also point to the fact if they just hadn't rescinded the uh, technical foul, he wouldn't have been out there, right? And everything would be fine. But but who's to say if this injury was going to happen that it wouldn't have happened in the first, second, or third quarter of the opening game of the pro of the postseason? You know, so um, I I don't really think anyone's at fault in this, and I, I wouldn't blame Kid or the organization for playing him. Yeah, I don't know that I can blame him either. It's easy to do that. I, I think what hurt Tim's case was he brought up Jerry Jones. Uh, and I don't think you could ever use Jerry Jones as a, a rationale for doing anything, can you? Uh, I, I don't know if that's I would, a good idea. I would say that Jerry Jones and two words that don't go together are rationale and rational. Yeah, yeah, neither one. So uh, I, w- I will say this, though. Obviously, uh, their chances of getting past the Jazz without Luka, our fully healthy Luka, are going to be really difficult. Um, they, they split the series this year with the Jazz. Uh, they lost those games when they were down several players. Um, I think they are a better team than Utah right now, uh, and they certainly demonstrated that during the season. You know, I, I you can make the case that, you know, uh, they might be a better team than Golden State. Um, I'm not sure about uh, obviously the Suns or uh, the or Memphis. So we, we'll see how far they can go here. But I, I think fans would be pretty happy that if the Mavericks just got past the first round. Uh, and I, I think if, if you do that, get into the second round, and, and you extend it to six or seven games, uh, then I think there would be. A lot of satisfaction with that, given the fact that the Mavericks had so much 
transition this year uh, with the big trade in the middle of the season, uh, dealing with Kristaps Porzingis for Spencer Dinwiddie, and uh, and and that just working out so famously. It's unbelievable how well it worked out and how it worked out so quickly. Uh, and uh, I think there's a feeling about what they can do going forward now at this point. And maybe there's a little lessening of a feeling that they have to add another superstar. I think it was interesting that uh, ESPN uh, posted a story today about the problems of two teams specifically, uh, the Lakers and uh, and Brooklyn, uh, and trying to assimilate these super teams and maybe uh, even asking the question, Are the, is the era of super teams over, you know, is it just a question of sacrificing too much for the egos uh, of these players and, and subjugating the team concept that you're trying to build? Certainly the Mavericks have built that kind of team. You know, this is a team with one great star that they drafted, and then the rest of the players are pretty much uh, acolytes. You know, they, these, are, these are all players who are uh, built for – certain roles and they have performed them extremely well. And there was a feeling that that, that kind of team couldn't win. I was under the belief that, that kind of team couldn't win, that you, you needed at least two stars and maybe even three to really make it work. Uh, the Mavericks are making liars out of that. I think you still need two stars in this league. Um, and, and I think that if the Mavericks get past the first, without Luca for game one, it certainly makes it a more challenging series. I think you can come up with a solution to get through game one and still win this series. If he's going to miss multiple games, it obviously puts them in a really bad spot. If they get past Utah, yeah, it does represent progress. And like you said, Kevin, I mean, I think the way the trade has turned out, there's going to be a, a, a positive feeling if this team shows progress in year one under Jason Kidd, goes deeper than it had, um, and there's an optimistic future, yes. But I, I, I think that you still go into the offseason looking to make the best additions you possibly can. I, I don't think anything should be, should be taken as, a, okay, this team is set, it's ready to go for the future. Um, this is still a league that's about as much talent as you can get, and – if you need to, you go out and find what you can. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think where the Mavericks are now with with this injury to to Luca and the uncertainty going into this series, uh, there's a there's a best case scenario and a worst case scenario, and I don't know that there's much in between for them. You know, uh, I think the worst case is uh, Luca is out for a game or two, or when he does come back, he's clearly compromised. Then they go out in the first round yet again, and you kind of you kind of throw your arms in the air if you're part of the Mavericks organization and go, well, what did we really learn? You know, we you know we we saw some things we liked in the in the regular season and saw some progress there, but we didn't come close to to seeing if it was you know if we could sustain it to the postseason. So. To me, that's the worst case, um, and and again, just giving away home court advantage like right out of the shoot if he's unable to play. And I still think there's a chance he can play on Saturday uh, because of his age. And, and what we don't know is we don't know uh, if it's a grade one sprain, he has a chance to play based on where it is in the calf. 
But if it's a grade two, there's no chance he plays this game or, or the next game either, for that matter. Uh, but but the best case scenario is is that that he comes back, and even if he's compromised early, they get through this series, they hold home court, they get to the second round, and then I would argue facing Phoenix, who is the favorite to win the title or certainly come out of the West is the best case scenario for them because then they have a gauge of exactly where they are and what more they need to do. Um, you know, this isn't, you know, advancing to the conference finals earlier than you thought and then losing to a team. I mean, yeah, that would be ideal, but, but playing Phoenix and getting an idea of where you stack up and what you need to do in the West, whether that comes in the second or, or third round, to me is irrelevant as long as Dallas is there, because I think everyone agrees Dallas is not built to win a title this year. So if you're not built to win it this year, to me, it doesn't matter when you face Phoenix. You just want to face Phoenix to see how you stack up. Yeah, I think the the issue about the the second star now becomes not so much um, firepower as it is just well, what happens when somebody goes down? Uh, who replaces him at that point? Uh, and that and that is the issue right now. Uh, Dinwiddie has at times, uh, especially early on, uh, shown he was capable of that. He put up a thirty point game, you know, in, in Luca's absence. So he is shown the ability to do that. Now he hasn't done it lately, and he hasn't been nearly as assertive as he was early on, uh, which is kind of perplexing. I'm not really sure, you know, what that means, how you how you could play so well early in your transition to a new team and uh, and not seem as uh, as well prepared uh, later on when you think that that would uh, your role would only grow. Uh, I, I do think Jalen Bronson and Dinwiddie, if they play really well, they're capable of making up for a large part of that absence, but just clearly that means that everyone else is just going to have to play lights out. Uh, they're going to have to get a, a tremendous performance defensively. That is something they've been able to count on this year. Luke is certainly not the, the linchpin of that defense. So that, that part, they won't miss as much. Um, they, you can count on them to play good defense. And that is something that really is for me, the difference maker for them going into this, uh, in these playoffs, they've never had that before, or at least they haven't had it on a consistent basis. They never had it to this level. Even the team that won the title was not as good defensively as this one is. So uh, I, I do think that that speaks well for them going forward. But it's going to be problematic if, if Luka can't play or is compromised one or the other. All yeah, right, that's going to do it. Logically, just real quick, I, I find this series interesting because – Dallas has been able to come back from big deficits all season to win games, and Utah has shown an inability to hold on to big leads over the course of the season and have blown big leads repeatedly. So uh, I, I've got to think if you see that dynamic play itself out in the first couple of games, uh, then that's going to really get in the head of the Jazz. Well, that's what the, our old pal uh, Brad Townsend came up with a lot of stats about that and about how we, we've seen the evolution of these two teams over the course of the season, one going one direction and one going the other. Yep. Uh, and I think that that uh, is uh, absolutely the truth. We'll see how that bears itself out in the playoffs. Uh, it's a little bit of a different animal. And so we'll see what they do. Uh, now we like to talk about uh, our uh, – You don't want to talk about this. The, the Rangers? Yeah, you don't want to talk about it. Oh, You're a grumpy now. old man. Grumpy old man. Look, I go out there yesterday. It's a beautiful day. It's opening day. How great is that? And you know, you know, it's always it's always fun on opening day, and the roof's open out there, and it's nice, and it's pleasant, and they 
and they then, gra- and then they, here they comes gra- Kevin. Ah, there's no bullpen. How come they don't got no relievers? I think it was a little bit more than just that. That how about that? Can, little I, can I add one about not selling out? Yeah, how about not selling out? How about the fact that the fans aren't believing in this team either? Thirty-five thousand for that for the home opener. John yeah, Blake, I don't know. John Blake was trying to sell the fact that well, you know, the original home opener was on a Thursday against the Yankees, and so that was having to reschedule and being against Colorado. That's a different thing. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I I will say this. I don't know that you can I don't know that you can completely tie the lack of a sellout at this home opener to poor performance last year. I mean, once you do have to start selling games with only a month ago and not not having something really exciting. Well, I you don't have an exciting team yet. You have a couple of exciting players. Um I I I think it was going to be a challenge. I will say this. The last time this team didn't sell out at home uh, for the home opener was 96, coming off of the strike. That was a good team, and it built interest all year long. This team can this team can build more interest in it uh, than there certainly was last year, and I think that's what they're aiming to do as this year goes on is get better. This is simply a starting point. And that, I think, leads right back to you, Kevin, and where you want to go with the bullpen. Yeah, well, you know, the problem is it's not just the bullpen. It's just the pitching in general. They're going to be short in the rotation. You know, Spencer Howard had a nice spring, and then he comes out in his first start and looks just like he did last year and looks like the guy that the Phillies gave up on and included in the Kyle Gibson trade to to the Rangers. Uh, Once they're top prospect, he doesn't look anything like a top prospect anymore. Uh, They're – there were moments and times when he was throwing his curveball and locating that, and then he and he got some strikeouts and did some good things. Uh, but uh, you know, for everything that they're asking the hitters to do, we're, we're seeing real development on the offensive side, and, not, and that's not including the, the the new guys. I mean, most of them already had good approaches as hitters. <laughs> we're seeing. Uh, dramatic improvement, I think, even though he only has a couple of hits so far this year. Adolis Garcia is taking more walks. He's he's not swinging wildly at things. He's making a, a, a concerted effort here, and it seems to be working so far. It's a little. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Joey Gallo, and that yeah, he's drawing more walks, and he's he's got he's got a home run. He's not showing a lot of power right now, but he is he is getting. You know, he got a a, a two run hit yesterday uh, on Monday, and and uh, and did, does look good. Uh, with two strikes too. With two strikes, absolutely. He's not he's not swinging on full counts all the time. So uh, we we are seeing progress there. We're, we're not seeing as much progress among the pitchers. And it's obviously a very small sample size. Uh, but you know, a bullpen can burn out a rotation really fast, uh, and that's that's the danger here of the fact that this bullpen is not very good. And I asked you know uh, Chris Woodward about that after the game. You know that there's nothing more demoralizing than a bad bullpen. Uh, and he said, well, we're just four games in here. There's no need for panic and doom. And, and that's exactly right. Uh, there's no question about that. But we also know who some of these guys are. You know, they don't have Jonathan Hernandez. They don't have Jose LeClerc. Those were the two best relievers in their bullpen when they were healthy. Uh, and they've got several guys who, who are pretty questionable. Uh, and, and then even the guys they had are veteran guys uh, yesterday and then and through the course of this early season have gotten beaten up Greg Holland and um, uh, uh, Brett Martin. So uh, there are real issues with this bullpen. And and I don't know, 
what exactly the, the Rangers can do to fix that right now. You can always, you know, obviously you can go out and acquire somebody, but it's a little, uh, that's a little iffy just going out and getting a reliever. I, I you know, I, I have a hard time buying into relievers. You know, John Daniels for all his warts has done a pretty good job assembling bullpens all these years. And this is, to me, looks like the thinnest one he's had so far. He's, and he is, of course, counting on those two guys to come back from injuries, but that's still a long ways off. Well, I think that, um, yeah, it is a long ways off. But the this team invested $580 million this offseason. And if you break that down, exactly $2 million of it went to the bullpen, and that was Greg Holland on a minor league deal. And so the first portion of this season was going to be about trying to identify pieces that could be long-term fits. And so I look more at the Joe, the Joe Barlows, at the uh, at, at Brett Martin, um, at Dennis Santana, at Josh Spores. Those are the guys whose performances I think I'm most going to uh, to evaluate. I have to add Brock Burke to that mix because I think that he's a guy that the Rangers have determined he probably plays better as a reliever. And he really had a nice performance in Toronto in a high-leverage situation, in what turned out to be a high-leverage situation uh, on Sunday. Got George, I think it was George Springer, on a, uh, looking at a 96-mile-an-hour at a fastball on the inside corner. Um, there's going to be a lot of casting calls and a lot of auditions over these first three months. And the Rangers' hope is that if they can hold it together, that they'll get Hernandez and Leclerc and could potentially, if they're still in contention at the deadline, have the inventory to go out and, and get another reliever and turn a bullpen that was a real question mark at the start of the season into, into an asset. If they're not in contention, and yes, the bullpen may play a role in that, if they're not in contention, I don't think that, that, being, that, that fixing this bullpen was going to be feasible with as many questions as they had about it going into the season. You just simply couldn't answer all of those questions. The one thing I do wonder about is I might have been willing to invest a two-year deal um, for $8 million in in Jake Diekman, who came on the other day in, in New York and had a save for Boston, and, and I think he would have been a really good fit for this bullpen, but at the end of the day, the Rangers had invested all their money on position players and one starting pitcher, and they chose not to go in this direction. I, Kevin, I just feel like, you know, this season's still a, there's still some element of finding out answers about this season. And the bullpen's going to be, the bullpen and the rotation are the two places where the Rangers are going to look most for, for trying to find long-term answers. Well, I think th th to me, the issue for that is just like I said, it, it's like, you know, they call it a fire brigade for a reason. It's like the house is burning down and this and this group is supposed to come and put out the fire. If you don't have anybody to put out the fires, it's a it's a disaster. I, I think you can the whole issue of a rotation. Look, in this market, especially we're used to the Rangers being short in the rotation. You know, they've they've had two or three guys who were pretty decent and maybe even better than that at times, but they haven't had five starters you know, in a long time. Uh, so that's not as big an issue to me. It's like, it, it's like you, you kind of raised everybody's expectations here because of this, because of the money you did spend on that middle infield. And because, uh, you know, that, that was a lot of money spent. What would it have cost you, as you said, to invest $8 million more in Jake Diekman, a guy that you know something about? 
you know, you know what he's like, and, and he's been very effective when he's healthy. Now there have been issues for him and his health, but when he but when he pitches, he's very good. You know, they they've done a very good job at, at uh, assembling bullpens in the past, and it just seems to me, you know, they didn't run out of money. It wasn't a question of well, we just don't have any more money to spend. They had more money to spend if they'd wanted to. It, it's just a little bit like well, let's just see where this goes. Uh, because we just we don't really want to make any big more big commitments, and let's just see what happens. And and I think that's just a very dangerous thing to do with a team because you know when you get in positions, they they they've led in all four games they played this season, uh, and you know they were scoring eight runs a game in Toronto. Uh, so the offense has held up its end of the deal. Uh, even even yesterday, even Monday, they you know they scored four runs, could have been five if not for that crazy play at the end of the game, and who knows where it would have gone from there, but. You know the deal is, is that you know after a while it just it's just demoralizing to watch your bullpen go out there and constantly blow up. So and you and you you always have to make choices financially, but yeah, Kevin, just to piggyback on what you're saying, you don't want to blunt or negate the core of your team that is the strength and is also generating excitement for fans and. You know, you use the board. It is demoralizing, but again, yeah, you, you can get off to a great start offensively, but then you suddenly start to feel if you look up and this team is averaging six and a half, seven runs a game, and it's, you know, it's three and 11, how does everybody feel? Then, then the strength of your team starts to feel, well, what more can I do? I mean, it, and sometimes bad habits develop out of that, right? It's like, well, I'm going to have to go, you know, I'm going to have to go for it here. I'm going to have to do more. Oh, I don't think I, I, I don't disagree with either one of you guys. I think the only thing, and I, I, the one place where I do agree with Chris Woodward is four games into the season is, is such a no, small sample size that I, I can't make any judgments at this point in time. And listen, in the game that they did win on Sunday in Toronto, the bullpen gave them six scoreless innings. So, uh, you know, on days when the bullpen's effective, yeah, this team's this team could be very good. Um, on days when it's not, it's I, I think there's no doubt that it's going to have some issues. Um, but I'm going to wait probably a good two weeks into the season, particularly with the short spring training and everything else that's involved, and maybe even until we get down to, to <clears throat> excuse me to May one. Once your bullpen is pretty much determined and, and you're down to 26-man rosters, how this bullpen looks and, and, and how they perform, I think everybody right now is still kind of in scramble mode, particularly on the bullpen side. Yeah, I don't doubt any of that. Those those are real issues. I just feel like that uh, the bullpen was a question going into the season. It wasn't like, wow, this bullpen is going to be terrific, and then all of a sudden it, it plays poorly for four games. You know, no, I, I, that, that, that was not the case. It, it is performing pretty much like we it thought it was going It reinforced all the to. negative stereotypes or your thoughts going into the season. Right. I, I think you, that everything you thought about this season, right, has kind of sh- – everything you think you thought about the season has showed up in the first four games. The offense is improved. Um, the starting rotation is a little bit short. The bullpen, you know, performance to this point has been very short. And then if you break down where the investments were this offseason, all of it was in the lineup, a little bit in the in the starting rotation, and actually and virtually nothing in the bullpen. And I think we also saw on was it Saturday? The yeah, Saturday in Toronto, you know, you've got a, a third baseman that's unproven. Ibanez had some trouble with a couple of ground balls. That ended up being costly in that game. And so 
all the things that you think you thought about the Rangers team, they've kind of reinforced over the over the course of the first four games. Yeah, not to mention, you know, that Corey Seager uh, has two errors so far and, you know, and has been involved in a couple of other plays where, he, you know, they weren't errors, but they were certainly misplays on his part uh, that uh, contributed to some of the problems. And, that, and when you don't have a, a bullpen that can, you know, snuff things out, uh, these things are magnified. You know, well, I'll tell you what, I, I tweeted the last week of spring training, one of the last games he made it, he made a, he had a bad inning in the field. And I tweeted something about, you know, a bad inning for Corey Seager in the infield. Don't expect to type that much this year. And Dodgers Twitter lit me up. <laughs> they said, oh, you might want to save that. They'll be, you'll be writing about that often. Um and, you know, when you signed Corey Seager, the question was, was he going to stay at shortstop all 10 years? Um, he is he is tall for a shortstop. You've heard that more than more than once about tall shortstops. Um, I think the play yesterday, he, as Chris Woodward said, he just tried to do too much and it just turned in and then just exacerbated a double play ball that he didn't have a double play on, um, threw that ball away and then wasn't great in the um, – in the ensuing rundown. And that was just not a great play. But I'll also say that Alex Rodriguez's first game in front of the Ranger, well, in front of anybody as a Ranger, Kevin, I think we both saw him trip over his own feet. And he ended up, for everything that we can say about Alex Rodriguez, and I've got plenty to say about the K-Rod broadcast, but we'll save that for another day. Uh, he's a pretty, He was a pretty good shortstop. And I, I think, again, with, with Corey, this is going to be the weakness with him, but it's going to take some. It, it's going to take some time to render a, a better judgment on whether it's just a, a bad opening week in terms of fielding, or if it's a real issue. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that the, the big thing about you know opening day is, is obviously most of it's just symbolic, and and once you the fact that the season has started and it's 162 games, and you, obviously you can't overreact to any of this. It's just that you know. Uh, after the Toronto series and after the dis- disappointment of, of blowing a seven and a nothing uh, lead and all those things are cumulative, you know, and, and they, and they, and they push forward. It's disappointing for the fans to see this kind of stuff. They were hoping to see something different this year. I think they are seeing something different. This is a, di- it's a completely different team from the one last year. You know, the, the one last year, there was no hope involved in that team. You know, Odolis Garcia embodied almost all of it all by himself. Uh, and, uh, and so now he's in the, he's in the place he should be this team. I think this can be a decent team. And I think that's to me, the, that's the issue going forward is it's up to management to figure out what to do with this bullpen. You can't dither too long on this situation. You're going to have to end up doing something here probably pretty quick instead of just sitting around waiting to see what happens and allowing the fan base to see the even more and even, and, and for, frankly, for the, the, the new guys on the team to think, you know, what do we got ourselves into here? So I think there's some things to, to live up to in, in all of this, and we'll see where they go forward for this point. All right, that's going to do it for our Rangers uh, segment of the podcast. Now we're going to talk about the, the Cowboys a little bit. Uh, we are, let's see here, today is we're taping this on the 12th. We are 14 days. Is it 14 days away? No, I can't uh, be right. 16. 
16 days away yeah. from the draft on the 28th. Uh, and so uh, at some point before that draft, we're going to have our own little mock draft. I know you don't see very many of those. It's hard. It's really a relatively new concept. It's a rarity. Yeah, yeah it's a rarity that, that people actually do mock drafts. But we're going to uh, chime in with our own. So what the heck? Uh, but, David, I'm wondering, are you getting any, any kind of signals out there as to exactly what way the Cowboys might lean well, if we just, you know, this is a this is a deeper draft than there has been in a while at a lot of different positions. Uh, the pandemic had something to do with that, you know, some some players staying in who who would have come out earlier. Uh, you know, I, I believe most years, uh, Will McClay with the Cowboys has said that normally you give uh, draftable grades on your board to about 160. 165 players. Um, they had draftable grades on 225 players, and that wow. was as of three weeks ago before they really started to dig in on this. Now, um, so that tells you you're dealing with about 60 more players that the Cowboys and other teams are going to have draftable grades on versus a normal year. So, um, it's about two more rounds. Yeah, yeah. So you're really looking at uh, – and. You know, Dallas is, has accrued four picks in the fifth round. Um, so they, they have some ammunition there. They might be able to get something out of that third day that normally you're not able to get because the quality of player would really be more, uh, especially early in that third day when you're when you're going into the fourth and fifth round. It, right, it might really be closer to what you're getting at the end of, of the third round on the second night. Uh, the plateaus are just going to be deeper. Um, you know, now does that mean teams are going to move around more? Uh, does it mean they'll want to move back to accrue more picks? Does it mean these teams with additional picks are going to put some together and say, well, let me jump up uh, before the plateau breaks so I can get the most qual- you know, talented guy in our assessment before things, before there's a run on the position? So I think because of it being deeper, um, there's a chance you could actually see more moving around, and and you have in some ways already. I think there, I think there have already been 17 trades uh, that involve like the the first two to three rounds of the draft coming up. Um, I think that you had 17 in that in that same um, in that same window uh, or, or draft you know position through three rounds all of last year. So you've already seen as much trading as you had like all of last year, which I think indicates uh, we're not done on this. Uh, you know, if Dallas stays at number 24, which I guess we can start the conversation that way, um, I do think it breaks to where there should be arguably the top two to three offensive linemen in this draft still on the board when they pick. And we know the interior of the offensive line is a need for this team. Uh, I think the top, you know, one to two receivers can be gone, but uh, you're still going to have some first round worthy receivers that will be there at number 24, uh, which would also pique your interest. And while I would doubt there would be um, uh, a rush, uh, a pass rush end uh, that would still be there at 24. You you have a chance. And now let's go one more position, which to me would be pass- fascinating, which Dallas hasn't assigned great uh, positional value in to in the past. 
But say somebody like Georgia's Jordan Davis, uh, the massive defensive tackle, is there at 24 and, and arguably as good of a defensive tackle as there is in this draft. And he hasn't gone off the board because of the premium talent at all the other positions. Um, does that gain Dallas's interest? So I, I think they're really in a, a in a pretty good spot to be a, a, as deep as they are in the first round. Could we read anything into the fact that the Cowboys, even though they've lost Lyle Collins, they've lost Connor Williams. Um, I guess losing them is not the, quite the right word. They they were, they were fine with those guys. Uh, yeah, they they, they let them walk. They yeah, made they the decision walk. to let them go. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the fact that they have not signed any veteran uh, offensive linemen as replacements. Should we read anything into that that, that that might tip us to the way they might draft? Yeah, it, it the way things stand right now, one, they didn't want to pay the money to a veteran who they thought was more or less a stopgap or a backup guy. Uh, because I can tell you, if there would have been in their mind what they feel is a a starting interior offensive lineman at a reasonable price, he would be on this roster right now. So they wouldn't be in a position where they have to take that guy uh, in the first two nights of the draft. Now, if, if the if the Cowboys do not take an interior offensive lineman in the first round, they have to do it in the second or third round on Friday night, the Friday night of the draft. They just have to because the way this team is constructed at the moment, they need to draft a walk-in starter in the interior of the offensive line. And if you go beyond Friday night, which is the second night of the draft and the third round, uh, you can't count on getting that player. Yeah, the two guys you see come up pretty consistently in that range where the Cowboys would pick an offensive lineman, the Texas A&M guard, uh, Kenyon Green, and then also Zion Johnson, the Boston College guard. Um, both of those, uh, Kenyon Green has played several positions on the line, uh, has uh, not played center, but has pr- apparently worked out some there at center. Uh, I see where uh, the talk about Zion uh, Johnson is that he is – more of a prototypical guard, not really a tackle prospect, but both guys are, are more or less seen as walk-in starters, that they would be day one guys if the Cowboys were to draft. And, and you know, by my way of thinking, David, if one of those two guys is available there, uh, in, in, then they should take one of those two. I mean, I, I know the under, I, I understand the whole concept of taking the best player. I've always advocated for taking the best player. But when you're at 24, you are – you are missing the top talent of the draft. You're missing the real difference makers in the draft, the, the Micah Parsons kind of player. Those kind of guys are gone by then. And it, to me, if you can get the best player at this position at 24 and it's a position of need for you, well, then you are drafted, drafting the best talent available. Yeah, it, to, to me, it, it's a no-brainer there. Um, but now let's go back to last year and what we were, were we saying that the Cowboys were going to have to take a corner in the first round and look out of these, you know, certainly out of, of, of horn and, you know, two of the guys, you know, one of the two would still be there. There were Patrick three top Sertain corners and uh, horn. Yeah, yes. exactly. And there was a sense. And what happened teams knew that a corner was going to go to Dallas. And so you either take the corner before it gets to Dallas or you know what, you go on the clock when Dallas is on 24 at 22, the team goes, well, you know, um, we, we, we're, 
we'll be fine to move back six, seven spots here because we're still going to get the player we want. Uh, who wants to jump up here and take this offensive lineman? Because you know he's going to be gone at 24 uh, when Dallas picks. So that's the other thing. I think Dallas's needs are so obvious in the offensive line. They also have to be on red alert on the first night of the draft um, to where they can't really put themselves in a position of, you know, see, last year, it's a lot It's a lot different when you're operating at the top of a round than toward the bottom of a round. And even though Dallas knew it lost out on the corners it wanted last year, they still knew that Micah Parsons was rated higher on their board than both of those players, and that because of the position he played, he was he was you know he wasn't going to be targeted. So they felt comfortable moving back a couple of spots and still getting you know getting an additional pick and, and still getting Parsons, who was actually higher on their board. Um, but if these two guards and in, in, in Green and Johnson are gone by the time they pick at twenty four. Um, you know, one other guy they've looked at is, is uh, Joshua uh, uh, Ezedwa from uh, North Carolina. Now, but he's more of a third round guy. He, he's not a guy you're going to take in the first round there. And do you project him as a guy who can come in and start immediately? Now, suddenly, if you're there, you haven't spent the money to solidify the position in free agency. And um, you don't get a guard on those two picks. Now you're sitting there and you're going, well, you know what? McGovern's going to have to be our starting guard uh, or at least uh, put him in a competition to do it. And, and I don't know how good do you feel about that based on what you saw from McGovern last year. No, you don't. Uh, and, I, and I think that was uh, – it's clear to me it, it feels a lot what they were doing this year and letting these two guys walk, uh, it, a lot like when Jason Garrett came in and remade the offensive line. Remember, he just came out and basically yep. booted the entire group. Uh, and it, it, it seemed like uh, such a radical – you know you know, thing to do to, to all at once to all those guys. I remember thinking, okay, I can see you getting rid of one or two of these guys, but it seemed like he got rid of four of them uh, all at once. And I think that was the, also was the draft where they, they took Tyron Smith, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. And obviously that was a pretty, uh, pretty big uh, building block. But and again, that was a 10, getting older 24 now. now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's exactly. So you're not going to get a guy like that. You're not going to get a tackle like that. You know, you might get a tackle that develops into something later on. And there are, there are some tackles like that. Uh, but you're not going to get a guy uh, at 24 tackles or, or, or luxury items in drafts now, offensive tackles. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, it'll be interesting to see. I, I wouldn't mind to see if they, you know, uh, and, and you brought up, uh, the defensive tackle from Jordan, uh, yeah, Jordan Davis Dangerous from, from Georgia. Georgia. Uh, he's kind of a, to me, he's not a three down tackle. You know, he's, he's not going to generate much of a pass rush and that is going to hurt his draft stock i believe and i do think he could fall to the cowboys in that in that range it'd be interesting to see if they would want to do that of course he would be great at stopping the run and that has been a problem for this uh, this cowboys defense no question and that's about been that. a weakness from him yeah and, and while he's not regarded as a really strong pass rusher his his athletics his athletic ability is off the board and and just just imagine with uh, micah parsons behind him if you put uh, you know, you know Jordan Davis in front of him, and with the flexibility and mobility of Micah Parsons behind him, and what, how they use J. Ron Curse, and how you can bring pressure from different directions. 
I mean, he can hold a point and you can rush from different areas and make the rushers more effective, right? Even though you're not a rusher yourself. So I, I think it's an intriguing concept. And, and you know, in previous years when Rod Marinelli was here, I don't know that we'll be having this discussion. But but I, th- I think Dan Quinn showed last year that in, in a very, you know, in a very short time, he has revised what his concept of defense is about, and he can use the skill of a player and make it work in this scheme and make a hybrid scheme. And uh, a, a player as talented as Davis, I think, is would be a fascinating addition. And, and Evan, I know you you followed him a lot. Kind of what are your impressions on, on him? Again, that Georgia defense, which is so outstanding overall. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, and they, they had every element, but Jordan certainly um... – I believe Steve Hummer at the Atlanta Journal and Constitution regarded him as the Bulldogs Alp with cleats. He's so big. But I think the thing that stood out for everybody was the the amount of athleticism he showed at the at the combine. Um listen, I, I if he's there, uh and I think based on where I I feel like this team's biggest need are, uh he certainly makes a lot of sense for me. Um, but you guys bring up great points about the offensive line. I, I just don't know that you're going to be able to address all of the offensive line needs in, in one in one draft. Probably not. And that you know, and that, the other thing about Jordan Davis, I will say, you know, he's, he's not demonstrated he's a great pass rusher at the college level, but he is a tremendous athlete. And so it's not like he's just some big 350 pound guy that you're, you know, that uh, just kind of like snacks Harrison, you know, who's just gobbling up space you know this is a guy maybe with a little extra coaching maybe he becomes that kind of tackle that with that kind of speed and athleticism and that size maybe he can become more of an interior pass rusher more even a, a, a three technique than a one so uh I, I i'm i'm very intrigued about the cowboys drafting in the line i think an offensive line or defensive line either one is fine to me those are the priorities of this team i i i cannot get behind the whole wide receiver thing in the first round. I don't care who falls to them at that point. You can get a wide receiver who makes an impact on this team next year in the second, third, or fourth round. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I don't uh, I don't know that you can say the same thing about the interior of the offensive line or defensive line. No, we had I, this conver- I agree. We had this conversation a couple of years ago, and I, I, I remember posing this to you, Kevin. What if C.D. Lamb falls, right? What if he falls? Um, because I think the, th- the thought process was that the Cowboys needed to go in a different direction then. Um, I don't know that there's a wide receiver of CeeDee Lamb's capability that would, that would be around at 24, and this team has other issues right now. Yeah, I think I just think that you know the whole idea, people are unduly influenced by the, the loss of Amari Cooper and thinking you've got to replace Amari Cooper. And say, well, not, not necessarily. You know? There are just so many alpha dogs you can have at wide receiver. And I think that C.D. Lamb is that. I think that Michael Gallup is a perfect compliment to him because of what he does and because of his mindset and the way he works. And I think that adding a third player that they can get, a third wide receiver they can get in the draft, I think they can find that. You has, know, this we, team's, we, has this team's failures over the last few years to either one of you guys? Do you trace it back to lack of skill players or do you pl- trace it back to lack of interior, interior linemen and, and defensive linemen? Oh, I think there's no question to me. It's in the line both ways. The offensive line has been a disappointment now for a couple of years, right. uh, and and the defensive line has been terrible. They were better this last year, but but you know for two or three years they were terrible against the run. So yeah, I don't think there's any question of that. That, that that's not the issue. 
you know, the public thinks too much like Jerry Jones, you know, boy, we want a flashy player who's going to make something happen out here. It's like, then these games, I, I hate to sound like an old fart, but you know, games are one in the, in the trenches, you know, down there in the offensive and defensive line. That's why Alabama wins so much, you know, because they have the best defensive lineman in college football. Uh, and that's why Georgia won this year because they had the best defensive line in college football. That's, those are the hardest things to find. You can find quarterbacks. You can find wide receivers. You can find running backs. In every draft, you can find them littered throughout the draft and guys who can make contributions. It is really hard to find defensive linemen who can make that kind of difference and offensive linemen as well. Yeah, will, will the individual talent at receiver be as good this coming season as it was last season? No. But between C.D. Lamb, Michael Gallup, whoever they draft, James Washington coming in, and, dare I say, Tony Pollard getting the ball more uh, out in space as a receiver. Are you trying to tell me you can't make up for the production that you lost with Amari Cooper? And, and I don't know that, that that fans just want the one-on-one equation there, right? They, they don't really look at it as, can you make up for the production? And who does it? And who does that mean has a greater role? Well, Fans have been complaining about Tony Pollard not touching the ball enough now. Well, you know, without Amari Cooper here, he may touch the ball one to two more times a game in the passing game uh, to make up for what you've lost with Cooper. So it it gives you a different element. Uh, You don't have the individual talent, but that doesn't mean you can't compensate for it. Drafting on the fan referendum would, is not a great way to go in any sport. Let's just leave it that way. And I, and if it does come down to what people are complaining about, what have people complained about more? The lack of this team's wins in playoff games and, and advancement to the Super Bowl over the last half uh, quarter century, half century. I had the Rangers on my mind. I apologize about that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this team needs to address needs. It doesn't need to to go out necessarily and find playmakers because I think to both y'all's points, there are lots of skilled players out there that that end up having really bright careers in this league as playmakers and as the dominant forces in offenses that aren't found in the first round. No question about it. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, next week we'll be able to talk about just how the Mavericks fared with or without Luka, uh, and we'll get a little closer to what the uh, the draft is going to hold for the Cowboys. Maybe we can zero in on some things, and we're going to get ready for that uh, that mock draft in a couple of weeks. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>